This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. In today's episode, we're going to chat with historian Phil Payne about how he chose history, public history in particular, how he chose history as a profession, the backstory on how he came to write his two books on Warren G. Harding and the stock market crash of 1929. We'll ask Phil about his take on the future of history as both a profession and an avocation in light of our current culture wars and history wars, which are a major part of those culture wars. More to the point, we'll examine a very interesting question Phil posed to me about why why history does so poorly in school, that is, it has low enrollments and sometimes you get high student dissatisfaction ratings, but yet is a vibrant topic in public discourse. In fact, as I said a moment ago, arguments over history are at, are at the core of our current culture wars. Phil, welcome to the American Tapestry Project. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you here. Phil is a professor of history and department chair at St. Bonaventure University, where, in the interest of full disclosure, I should note I had the honor to serve as interim president in 2016-2017, helping the university navigate the transition between President Sister Margaret Carney and the late Dr. Dennis DePiro. In fact, the entire American Tapestry Project's genesis its origin story, if you will, resulted from a 2016 hallway conversation between Phil and I about the impending 50th anniversary of 1968. At Bonas, as just about everyone at St. Bonaventure calls it, Phil teaches a variety of courses in United States history. He also teaches undergraduate courses in public and digital history. Phil is the author of two books, Dead Last, The Public Memory of Warren G. Harding's Scandalous Legacy, and Crash, how the economic boom and bust of the 1920s worked. In addition, Phil has published articles and essays on popular culture, focusing on movies and comic books. More about Phil can be found at his website, History Professor Payne, which can be found at this address, www.historyprofessorpayne.com. Once again, Phil, welcome to the American Tapestry Project. All right. I'm, I'm excited to have this discussion. I always enjoy it. Well, I hope we have. I hope you enjoy today's discussion because I know there's a a number of interesting questions you've posed. You know, Phil, there are a number of ways we could go with today's conversation, but I'm particularly interested in how you chose the study of history as a career path, how you choose your research topics, and kind of wrapping both of those up into a larger conversation connected to the American tapestry search, its search for the American story or the story of America. What do you think is the future of history? Boy, is that a big question. What do you think is the future of history as a field of inquiry? Why do you think the history wars in our current cultural and political skirmishing are so intense? In any event, Phil, with those questions in the background, tell us a bit about yourself, how, why you became a historian. So I started out as an undergraduate history major back, you know, I graduated from high school in 1983, from college in 1987. My initial plan was to go to law school. So it was very classic in the sense I was like history uh, major pre-law. And then I just 
kind of didn't want to go to law school, um, mostly because I was, I really enjoyed my history classes. I've always, I just liked it. Um, so we decided to go to grad school. And at that moment, there was a lot of predictions that there was going to be a lot of jobs in higher ed because the idea was that baby boomers were going to be retiring. So it seemed like a good career choice. So I went to Ohio State for grad school. So Phil, after thinking about going to law school, you chose to go to grad school in history. A lot of us thought about law school and then for any number of reasons pivoted. Many of us pivoted to history or, interestingly enough, English, but you chose history. What was it, uh, what is it, that you like about history? A couple of things I really like about history is I'm really fascinated with these topics about national identity. I've always just kind of thought of that. But the other thing I really like about history is, and this is both a, this is a double-edged sword, is it kind of gives me an excuse to do anything I want. <laughs> Literally everything has a history. So, so it's not, and, it's, and I, I like other disciplines. I will occasionally put my foot in other disciplines and then I can, I can justify that by saying, well, it's just, it's just I'm almost still doing history. I don't know how many liberal arts majors in history and English. I used to joke the world is run by history and English majors. And that was true once upon a time. To a certain extent, still is true, not as true as it once was. But those history and English majors, a surprising number of them did go to law school. But an equally surprising number decided law school wasn't for them. Uh, I'm particularly interested in, you mentioned uh, the two things. Of course, uh, history gives you the freedom I mean, there's just an endless, I mean, literally endless source of topics to pursue. So it gives you a, a terrific amount of freedom. But I was interested in your comment there about national identity. How, how did you find that topic? I'm not sure finds the right word, but. I, that might be like, like there is that old joke in higher ed about um, your research is me search. And what, so this is, this is what I tell my students. This is, and there's a little bit of humor in this, but there's, there's a fair amount of truth in it is that you know, when I was, I'm, I'm 57, born in 1965, so I would come home from school and the guy would be showing cartoons in the afternoon, except they were preempted by Watergate. So I remember watching Watergate as a kid. And then, you know, sort of that, that stretch from Watergate to Reagan, you know, our national politics are in the news a lot. And I think that just kind of hooked me in a, in a way. I mean, it sort of fed into my predilection to like, like to read and try to understand these things. And I think there's also, because this also ties into my dissertation, which I never published as a book, is a sense of where the country's going, but I'm living in this little town in Southeast Ohio that's clearly deindustrializing. So I think in retrospect, although I didn't think of it this way at the time, I'm watching basically the optimism of Reaganism take off as I see the town I'm growing in, I grew up in just shrinking a little bit every year. And that was actually my dissertation topic. You know, that's a fascinating topic. I've recently been doing a lot of reading in the work of Fiona Hill. Fiona Hill served both Presidents George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. In fact, she was on the National Security Council. Uh, she was the quote-unquote Russia expert. And she talks about her experience growing up in Northeast England. She is startled by the similarities between that experience and what she's discovered in America. Post-Reagan, post-industrial, post-Thatcher-Reagan deindustrialized uh, communities that have been left behind that gave rise to a lot of resentment. Maybe we can come back to that when we talk about the history wars. I want to go back for a moment to your comment that uh, that research is really me-search. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because that really struck me, and I'll, I'll come back and explain why it struck me if, after you elaborate on it for a moment. 
Well, I think part of it is because because in a little bit we're going to talk about my work on carding and presidential images, and that's got a very specific origin story. But that sort of fascination with politics. So the me story part would come in in two places: is like having grown up and having experienced you know both deindustrialization, watching literally like watching factories shut down, and remembering like when I was in high school, I was like standing in line somewhere trying to I get a summer job. I think it was a Taco Bell. I don't remember. It was a fast food place. And I was in line with men who were probably my age now who had been laid off. And that kind of had an impact on me. And even at the same time, you're kind of looking for that that sense of there's Nixon and this crashing and burning of his presidency, even as he's so obsessed with his image. And then Reagan coming in. And on one hand, there's all that optimism. But then you're sort of the contrast with my life. So I think it's that me search thing that you're kind of always looking for, like understanding this idea of well, where is the United States going? Because I kind of grew up with those contradictory images. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, me search, you know, you're trying to understand uh, where the United States is going and what's going on around you. And probably as as all of us are trying to do is to not only understand that, but also to understand how we fit in. Oh, it was like, where do places like Arlington, Ohio fit in? Or Canton, Ohio, where I grew up. And we're going to talk in a moment about Marion, Ohio. You know, I I mentioned earlier that the entire American Tapestry Project began uh, chatting with Phil literally in in a hallway outside his office. We were talking about how the 50th anniversary of 1968 was impending. As Phil has said, you know, he was born in 1965. Well, in 1965, I was in college. But I graduated from college in 1968, and my interest to a great extent in the 60s and in 1968 has really two prongs. One, they are obviously, uh, Chris Majok, who was on the program last month, has a theory that just about all of American politics since roughly late 1970, certainly 1980, and Ronald Reagan is, uh, is a reaction to, if not a repudiation of much of what happened in the 1960s. But I'm also interested in it because that's the world I grew up in. I mean, it it really, and I was trying to understand what happened then and to what extent how it made me, me, and how it made America, America, or to use a phrase you sometimes hear in history, particularly in popular history, you hear it more than you do amongst trained historians, you know, the story of how we got to now. I don't know, Phil, does that, how does that resonate with you? I, I think that, like, I'm, I'm always a little conflicted about this because I'm, partly I see historians who, like, are commenting on the present, and I think we need to have a historical consciousness about our presence. I think it helps us understand where we are. But then the scholar on me, the scholar on me does kind of want to say, like, let's step back and not reshape the past, because I think there is a point where... If you're always going back into history, looking to just validate your current ideological standpoint, you're either going to get really frustrated with history or you're not going to do very good history. Uh, that's a really good warning. I read every day or almost every day Heather Cox Richardson's uh, letters from an American, her kind of riffing on Alexis de Tocqueville, I guess. Richardson is a fairly renowned, maybe renowned too big a word. No, I think a fairly renowned Civil War historian. She wrote how the South won the Civil War, West from Appomattox. She actually wrote a history of the Republican Party. But in her daily column, she puts current events in the context, in a historical context that at times is a bit of a stretch. Although 
it also helps frame our issues. You know, we could we could talk about this for a long time, Phil, but I'd rather um, get your take on a number of things somewhat related to this. And if, unless I'm mistaken, I don't know that you're actually from Marion, Ohio, but you I know you know a great deal about Marion, Ohio, and you became very interested in um, the public persona as opposed to perhaps the historic persona of Warren G. Harding, who until very recently was frequently ranked as the worst president in American history. I, I think events maybe of the last 15 or 20 years, he's now, he's actually climbed up a couple of steps. But how did you get interested in Warren G. Harding, whom, about whom you wrote a book, Dead Last? Yeah. I had a brief stint as a site manager for the Harding home. So I wasn't there particularly long, but it was long enough that got me thinking about it. Because I took the job and it's it's the time period I like, that, that sort of Harding when he's his sort of rise and becoming presidency is like, chronologically, I like that period of U.S. history, that, that sort of first two or three decades of the 20th century. I, I showed up and the historic site manager, the historic site manager, this is a small site because it's built before FDR created the modern system and now presidential sites are like massive. So this is a very, this is a modest, but very nice historic site. And but then the, the thing about it is, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, is like Harding has truly impressive memorial. That right there in Marion, it's on 15 acres. It looks grandiose. It looks like the Jefferson Memorial. But what he's known for are scandals. I mean, he dies in office. And then this creates an interesting thing in sort of a public perception is a lot of the public shows up. Some of the public shows up and they want to hear like this story of Harding was a great guy. People just didn't understand him. Like, like, like he was maligned somehow. And then there's always a fair number of people who are there because they like want to hear, they know, he's, I mean, there's also just fans of the presidency, but there's people also who are like, look at how terrible a president he was. So I was kind of looking at it and I was thinking, well, there's actually a lot of interesting things here. Like he's elected in 1920, which is a pivotal presidential election. But I got stuck on this idea is how does this person who I think if we're going to be realistic about it should be an obscure president from Ohio. How does he become such a contentious person? So you just have to go online. Your listeners can do this. Just Google up Warren G. Harding. But once you start getting into his stuff, it's like never ending list of like scandals. And, and like a lot of them aren't even true. Like he did have scandals. I'm not trying to say he didn't. But then there's some of them are just made up. So it became like twofold. One, how do we get this like guy? How does he have such a great memorial? With such a terrible reputation. So I got interested in that physically building the memorial. And then like, well, what do you do with him? Why do we even feel the need to celebrate him? He's interesting. He rose to the presidency, some success. He should have been sort of a wash. He had a couple, you know, successes as president, you know, Bureau of the Budget, Washington Naval Conference. But he also, his mistress was the first woman to write a tell book. <laughs> so that's what he's best known for. And in fact, that's he. That's where he keeps popping up in pop culture is references to his having mistresses. Well, you know, what's interesting about that, and it's, yeah. it's always striking, a lot of times uh, students and other people are kind of taken aback to discover that they're well, in Harding's case, probably great-great-grandparents uh, right. actually had a social life uh, and may not have adhered to all of the conventions. But, you know, yeah. what's interesting there, and it ties into, this is a really, uh, Harding is a good, and, and to a certain extent at this late date, non-controversial entree into a, a bigger question, which is the distinction between social memory and academic history, or even in our time, critical race theory, for example, in the actual and other, which would be an academic approach, 
and public history. I think it's interesting to discuss, you know, Harding's public perception of Harding versus the reality of Harding, and then the, the way he was memorialized as opposed to what he actually did. Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. I could, well, I was going to make a joke, but I could almost write a book about it. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a lot to unpack. So, so, so one thing that establishes Harding's elected right after World War One, and the Wilson administration had sort of, who, who was the president during World War One, had had kind of just gone off the rails. At the end of the war, Wilson had attempted to negotiate. He had negotiated with the Treaty of Versailles, but he made some missteps. And then while he's campaigning for the Versailles Treaty, he has a stroke and he literally disappears from public view. And so the president quits functioning, like like the government's kind of like dysfunctional. And so there's a huge recession. There's labor strikes all over the country. People are scared to death. We're going to have a communist revolution in the United States. And then there's Red Summer, where you have these, these white mobs attacking black crowds, black people after the Great Migration. So Harding runs in 1920, and he's like a compromise candidate. And his whole thing is return to normalcy, well, which he means is like, let's just calm everything down. So I think, number one in your thing, Harding gets elected, he cuts taxes, he, cal- he does successfully calm things down. He's actually much better than Wilson on race. By modern standards, yeah, we could argue that he's not particularly effective. But he does speak out against segregation and preventing pe- black people from voting. And then and then he dies in office. And he dies in office wildly popular because we're starting to see the, the roaring 20s emerge. He, the country has calmed down. The economy's recovered. And so that, that's what happens. He dies hugely popular. So actually, he was a very, up to a point, he is a very successful president. And then after he dies, there's this flood of scandals that come out about his administration. Cabinet members taking bribes, mistresses writing tell-all books. It just, it just doesn't end. It's like a Hollywood story. And then that's what brings out his reputation because Coolidge, who follows him and Republicans abandon him, they're like, they put the scandals on Harding and to a certain extent, justifiably so. I'm not trying to say Harding didn't do those things. So Harding sort of left without a champion. And then Marion to keep building this memorial. And I guess maybe the punchline is, is nobody will dedicate it. The only person is not dedicated until Herbert Hoover in, the ni- in 1933 goes and dedicates the memorial. And in his dedication address, he just sort of lashes out at Harding's friends for having betrayed him. It's fascinating, the politics of how do you figure out who's a hero and who isn't? Who do you memorialize and who, who do you not? Now, a couple of thoughts occur to me in there. One, Harding in some way is the first president to fall victim to the modern media machine. Uh-huh. Because you mentioned the Roaring Twenties. Movies were now popular, but of course, radio, it begins. Yep. Uh, it has a rather quick rise. And, and so Harding is actually in some ways, and I'm trying I'm I'm rapidly trying to scan my memory here, the first president to really fall victim to a scandal. Now we know Jackson, there was all kinds of things about him. Right. And of course, you go way back, Jefferson and Calendar and Alexander Hamilton and Maria Reynolds and all of that. But there wasn't the media well, everything's relative. You, you did have the press in the late 18th, early 19th century, the scandal mongers, James Callender and Philip Freneau. But but Harding is actually the very first modern president to fall victim to that. By the time you get to Harding, you also have the, the, the president as the focal point of all socio-cultural, political, to string together a bunch of words here, importance. And I think of another Ohioan who was a president who has a massive monument 
who was also like Harding for the longest time. His presidency was not thought to be particularly successful. He's had a kind of revival in the 21st century as a kind of early example of what I'd call neoliberalism. And in my hometown of Canton, Ohio, there is a massive McKinley Monument. I mean, it, it's a, um, a domed structure that sits atop a hill. Now, of course, McKinley, unlike Harding, well, Harding died in office, but he died of natural causes. McKinley, of course, was assassinated. And so that gave him a slightly different status. But you have this difference between their actual achievements or non-achievements, and then the way they are looked upon in social memory. McKinley yeah. is... Now, revered is the wrong word, but he's kind of revered in, in Canton. In any event, you posed a question to me prior to this, and so I'm going to pose it to you. Given what happened to Harding and, the, and given what happened to McKinley and come all the way into the present, how we obsess on who the presidency is, why do we fixate on presidents? First of all, it's kind of my humble opinion that we fixate too much on presidents. We don't focus enough on the other parts of the government, but it's, it's a little like, you know, the, use a football term, it's like the quarterback issue. You know, the, we, we, you have an entire team, but yet they always end up focusing on the quarterback because they can't. But going all the way back to Washington, you know, the presidency has been sort of somewhat patriarchal, head of the representative of the people, right? In a way that, you know, we don't have other institutions that really do. Like we don't have a monarchy per se, that we can sort of separate policy out from the ceremonial roles. And you you see this a lot with those, those memorials, the one in Canton to McKinley, the one to Harding. And then that was also the tradition of presidents back then as their hometown was sort of responsible for building the memorial. You know, that's interesting. You you mentioned the patriarch and, and the embodiment of the country and that, no, we don't have a, a monarch. In fact, the country was founded in rebellion against monarchy, although that's maybe an oversimplification. I found this quote, a historian named Henry Jones Ford said, the truth is that in the presidential office, as it has been constituted since Jackson's time, that'd be Andrew Jackson, American democracy has revived the oldest political institution, the elective kingship. And to a certain extent, symbolically, that's what we've done up until very recent times. Most occupants of that office have understood its, the difference between its symbolic and its actual practical aspects. In what way is the president and an embodiment of the country? Well, I think it's 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 our tendency to project onto the presidency what we want to see more than anything else. Like 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 you see this somehow. I'll, I'll go back to Harding, but Harding. I mean, you're right about Harding's positioning in terms of that the, the technology of our popular culture. Like he's the first president to have a movie star endorse him, and like they filmed his campaign, and, and like it's just this sort of whole escalation of that stuff. But they sort of put Harding out there as the embodiment of what what they wanted America to be, like small town newspaper publisher, self-made man. His wife was portrayed at that point as sort of a, they're, they're trying to thread the needle between her as a homemaker and her as a modern woman. So they're trying to figure out how do we how do we talk about the Harding family as like a stereotypical American family. And so they sort of did his house. They ran a front porch campaign and they basically sold Marion, Ohio as like small town America. The tranquility of small town America amidst the chaos of this emerging modern world. And I think that that's what a lot of our presidential campaigns are. Like you think Reagan, Reagan does that. 
So I think it's a lot of projection. And then I think a lot of it's just increasingly our president swimming in popular culture. You know, I was thinking about uh, what you said, president as the embodiment of what America wants to be or what Americans want America to be or what Americans think America is. I think that's really important. We tend to see the presidency as the focal point of the American story. We either accept what that implies or, or reject it. And as I think about that, I think about just in our own time, Barack Obama, for some people, could not play that role. And a lot of our post-2008 politics has been dealing with people who couldn't, it didn't embody what they thought America was. It, Hillary Clinton, for some people, did not fit that embodiment. Somewhere I read a quote, John F. Kennedy said, the presidential election is so important in America, and it ties into your comment on embodiment, because it is the only national election. It's the only time the nation as a whole expresses its preferences. How does that sound I, to you? I think, I think you're spot on with the observation about Obama. I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think it's that sort of the presidency swimming in popular culture. And we're often not asked to make decisions about tax policy or who should be the next chairman of the federal or chairperson of the Federal Reserve Board, even though those are hugely important decisions. It kind of goes back to there's even like a little bit of a Harding tie in here because one of the scandals, and that should be an air quote around Harding, is that there, there are to this day persistent rumors that Harding was a black man passing as white. And they're not true. And I got like a whole chapter in the book on this. Yeah. But this persists today. And there's been people who are just upset that they thought he might have secretly have been a black man in the White House really upset people. Just You know, the American presidency has become the lightning rod for American values. Yeah, It becomes really important to somehow understand the presidency as this um, this lightning rod, or in, in your word, the embodiment of American values. And I think all of the elections have become so hair-splittingly close, it's because, as a nation, that question of national identity is contested terrain, and it all lands on who the president is. I'm going to be doing um, book notes, John Dickerson, whose book, The American Presidency, uh, The Hardest Job in the World. Fiona Hill, who I've mentioned a couple of times in her book, There's Nothing for You Here, makes the observation that the American presidency is probably one of the most complicated or complex jobs in the world because it combines at least three things. You're a head of state, which would be the symbolic embodiment. You're the commander in chief of the military. But you're also a CEO, a chief executive officer who is supposed to actually run this thing. And those three things, most other countries, most other countries divide those three things. I would think that those are three very different skill sets. I mean, part of what we don't think about the presidency, what I think is really important is, is to your point, we, we elect a president, but we're, what we're really doing is electing a team. Yeah. Yeah. We don't think of it that way. Like I always think, really important, and we see this pop up periodically, is like, who's the undersecretary of whatever for whatever? And I think it even maybe even the way they call them like undersecretary, like, oh, that's not that important of a job. But then you think, no, that person's like maybe two, three rungs down, and they're running a large organization, or they're, they're really, they, they have a really important job. And, and we don't think about that because we just we just kind of assume we think about it symbolically it would be super weird if somebody ran for president saying here's who i'm going to appoint the undersecretary of whatever i think you're right that would be weird i don't know that yeah. that's ever happened no. uh, people have run on who they will appoint to the supreme court 
Once upon a time, you you would hear discussions about who might be Secretary of State or other things. But in recent elections, one doesn't hear anything about that. And or sadly, even less and less about policy. It's really, as I think of Fiona Hill's three-part division, we now, almost all presidential elections are all about being head of state. What yeah. does this person symbolically mean or embody or or say about the American story and who we are as a people? One of the ways I think, th- this is just unofficial, like my kind of finger to the wind, how how is the presidency going, is I start thinking about it, like when you see those people we're talking about who are two or three rungs down, when you see them regularly making statements or writing books, something's probably not working. Because those are people who just come in and do the work or that that work of policy, like year in, year out, and usually go from president to president and just provide this consistency of policy. Like when somebody like Fiona Hill is like now a public figure, to me, that's like, okay, something something probably went wrong. For our audience, Fiona Hill was a, a senior advisor to Presidents George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, particularly on European affairs and most particularly on Russia. And of course, she's writing a book about her experience on how she got to the White House. But her chapter on President Trump is all about the fact that he uh, that he simply didn't attend to what his quote-unquote experts knew was re- actually dismissive of, of them. And she, being a policy wonk, talks about that. And so, yeah, you're right. This, this, this plethora of books indicate well, I'll indicate two things. One, that there's actually a market for such things, but that's the least important one. Uh, indicate that something uh, wasn't working in, in the process. You know, Phil, as we talk about the president as the embodiment of the culture, and we're talked about Harding and McKinley's monuments, I want to come back to that just briefly and then segue into how you pick your research topics and particularly how you got interested in the stock market crash of 1929. But before we do that, what's the role of commemoration and memorials in society? Well, I guess I want to answer this in part because this is something we've, we've talked about a lot, that, that what is the difference with the different types of history? Commemoration is, and I want to be careful here because it's, it's easy as an academic to sound like I'm being dismissive of commemoration, public form of memory. And I'm really trying not to be that because I think it's an important social glue. It's an important social cohesion. And it's, it's, it's essentially the historic stories, the stories we tell ourselves. And it's much like with the presidency. What sort of society do we want to be? Who, who do we choose to honor and who do we choose to forget? And I think the choosing to forget is as important as who do we choose to remember and honor. So I think that's the role of commemoration. So I don't want to be dismissive of it. And I think this plays out in a lot of places. We're talking about the presidency. But one of the examples I often use, like teaching in Western New York, is one of the ways you can tell lifelong Western New Yorkers, Buffalonians, or however you want to say it, from people who aren't, as you say, wide right. You know, for me, I wasn't living in Buffalo, but like, but you can visibly watch some people cringe. They've got this legend, this myth of Scott Norwood missing the Super Bowl. Oh. See, and you didn't get it either. So I can always look at a class and be like, all right, those are the people who have been taught that memory, that 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 commemoration or whatever you want to think of, of why Buffalo lost four Super Bowls in a row. And over here are the people who, no, that's not part of their social memory. But I think, I mean, that's a relatively harmless, like that one, that, like, right? But I think that that's kind of the role of commemoration in, in like in a yeah. nutshell. Well, commemoration is part of how you create 
the story of who mm -hmm. we are, the story of who we are as people create it doesn't necessarily synchronize with what actually happened. No, and that uh, that's the real tension between right. academic history and, for lack of a better word, I'll call it commemorative history. Right. And it ties into the American story and the American tapestry because there are two notions. Uh, there's at least two notions, but there's one big contested notion about what constitutes a national story or a story of national identity, and that would be the cumulative story of all the things that happened and whatever that resonates at. But of course, that doesn't necessarily come together in a narrative thread. Somebody has to impose a narrative thread on that. And then that leads to the question, um, you know, in the, in the Republic, Plato talked about the notion of the noble lie. Don't write letters. He ultimately rejected, but he talks about the, the noble lie that maybe what actually happened happened isn't as important as creating a story that brings the people together into, that turns a, a mass of individuals, he wouldn't have used that phrase, but turns a mass of individuals into a people. And I think that contest is always going on. I, I would agree. I, I think that, that the, the sort of academic history like I did, where I seek to come up with patterns and complex explanations, and there's always like one more sentence you can add about something, that's in dialogue with these commemorative stories. And you can you can watch them alter each other, right? You can you can watch academics get interested in a topic because it sort of bubbles to the surface over in the commemorative part of history. And then you can watch people get interested in something because uh, it's, it's being debated in the commemorative part and they, they wander over into the academic history. I mean, I, I think a really strong example of that now is like our discussions around the Civil War and Robert E. Lee. Exactly. Which has shifted dramatically. And I, I think for a lot of Americans, and I'm not saying all Americans, but some significant portion was watching our debates over these Robert E. Lee statues and then said, well, what did Robert E. Lee actually do? So all of a sudden we've got academic biographies of Robert E. Lee pushing to the top of the bestseller list. So there, there's, a, there's a dialogue there somewhere. Right. And, and I think when that dialogue gets heated, it's a symbol, it's a sign that the culture no longer is in agreement about some of its foundational values, isn't the right word, but right. some of its foundational stories. And, and that sort of goes back to the Harding. And I don't know Harding's that hotly contested, but he never completely goes away. Right. But there are presidents we just forget about. We just don't care. Like, you know, like somebody somewhere cares, like the, somebody in his hometown or whatever. But like they came, they were president, they did their thing. And now we, yeah, we don't, we don't get, we don't get worked up about it. I'm going to hold this thought. I'd like to come back to this question of the tension between the commemorative stories we tell our, one another and academic history, which I'm not particularly fond of the word academic history, phrase academic history, professional history, we might call it. I want to come back to that in a moment. But one of the questions you, you posed to me as we were talking about organizing this program is, is how uh, one discovers uh, topics, you know, how do you decide or to choose on what you're going to uh, talk about? Could you speak? Uh, we're kind of changing topics here in a moment, and then we're going to come back to this uh, issue, is how did you get interested in the stock market crash of 1929? This this actually goes back all the way. Like, like I've always had this kind of interest in what are the repercussions of our economic decisions. It goes back to my, you know, deindustrialization stuff from earlier I was talking about. 
you know, you, you teach history and it's fairly common. You walk into the classroom, something has happened in the world and it sort of percolates into the classroom because there is an element of teaching that is history teaching that can be public facing. It's not always public facing, but, you know, we're all students, the teacher, me, we're all like reading the news. We see what's going on. So those two things kind of hit and we had this 08 financial crisis. I'm, I'm teaching classes and I'm hitting things like the stock market crash and, and whatnot. And I'm not an economic determinist, but I do think it's a big plays a big role in our life. I just was like, we don't really talk about this stuff, like this history of financial crisis, the impact, the social play, the way it plays out. That book really started out as me sitting in a classroom being like, everybody, we need to have a better sense of what are the history of these, these financial crises rather than sort of lurching through them, pretending they're a one-off and then being surprised when another one happens again. That, that's really interesting. There, there are so many gaps in our public knowledge, and I think economic history is a large one. But if I'm hearing you correctly, what got you interested in writing a book about the crash of 1929 was the fact that in the late 2000 aughts, students weren't really understanding the financial crisis right. and that this wasn't a one-off. These things happen periodically. And so the question is, is why? And I think that's that's really important. And that ties back into what we were talking about a moment ago, the difference between commemorative history and what what actually happened, yes. which students don't have the, the background, the informational background, and it hasn't been contextualized for them to understand economic ups and downs, then they can't really understand what's happening now. And it's... Right. Not that, you know, and I know there's the difference in history that history needs to be understood on its own terms and in its own times. But to a certain extent, I'm going to also argue it has to have some ability to help us understand what's happening to us, or it just becomes antiquarianism and, you know, isn't that quaint and interesting, but whatever. Uh, and that kind of leads me to a really big question, and that is... If that's true, if commemorative history is one thing, antiquarianism is another thing, then what's history? That's a big one, and that's at the crux of so much what we're kind of thinking about, and even from your introduction when we were talking about history is so vibrant, public arena. I, 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 I mean, I think that for me, there's a couple things we want to think about history, and and we we are both, and you mentioned you mentioned this, uh, like the John Lewis Gaddis book yeah. uh, on this topic. And, you know, Joe Lepore references this and C. Van Woodward references this. But history is the, all those different things that you just mentioned, but it all goes by the same name, history. So that just leads to confusion. And then history is basically us. We like to tell stories and often in those stories, we, we embed arguments. And those, but those stories have to be grounded in some sort of evidentiary archival work. Yeah. Right? We just can't. We're not fiction writers. You mentioned Joe Lepore. She has a really succinct definition of history, and I'm gonna, I don't have a note here, but I've used it enough. I think I've got it right. She says, history is the art of telling a story about the past accountable to evidence. And I, I, I largely think that's true. I think we're living, we've always lived in a world, but now we're increasingly living in a world where, where how that story is told and where that story is told is just, there's so many more options now. And it's not like history books have gone away, but it used to be, you know, if you were going to do history, you had like a, maybe a museum exhibit, maybe a documentary, but those are expensive to do. Mostly you had articles and you had books. Yeah. Now history is, is, is everywhere. You made the interesting comment to me 
And it ties into a couple of other comments that we can talk about here in this last portion of, of the program. You know, what is history is, you know, one of those gigantic questions that's almost a mind fogger. Uh, you you yeah. really you really can't answer it. I say you almost you're almost better off just like doing history. And then once you do it, kind of figure out what it is you've done. Yeah, I, I made the comment once that whatever history is, you can't go there. It's essentially a, a story or a set of stories we tell ourselves about the past. Joan Didion's famous line, we tell ourselves stories to make sense of our experience. We take storytelling as the the macro genre, then one of the subgenres, and I'm not even sure I like the word sub in there, but one of the subgenres is history is one way we go about telling it. The difference between history and fiction is Lepore's comment accountable to evidence. But that even opens up a rabbit hole. You know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, and I, you mentioned Robert E. Lee earlier, who is, you know, venerated or was, still is in many places venerated. And yet now there's this revisionist notion that mm, maybe he shouldn't be venerated. Ty Saiduli in his book, Robert E. Lee and Me, talks about that. And people wonder, how can history change? We were taught this, and now you're telling me that. One of the things about history, and I think it leads to some questions about why are the history wars so intense, is that on an objective point of view, people just don't understand how history works. And you mentioned John Lewis Gaddis. I've always found, and actually you recommended it to me, if I recall, his landscape of history, uh-huh. in which he says historians are like a landscape painter or a landscape landscape photographer, in which the picture or the image is continually coming into better focus. And I I really like that image of it's coming into better focus, but that can disorient people because what they thought they knew, they don't know. Which leads me to the question, why why are the history wars so intense? I think it's everything you were just talking about because it becomes, the history wars become sort of central to our identity as, as a people, nation, community. And people want to see themselves, they want to project themselves. A couple ways to look at it, even though on occasion it can be, the history wars can be a little exhausting. You're like, okay, we're arguing about this again. It's also, I have to remind myself, it's like, well, that's a good thing because people care, right? We argue about the things we care about. The other thing about history is, interesting as me as an academic, is history is a topic where most people assume a certain level of, like, I know this, regardless of whatever they may or may not know. I think it, I think it's probably a little harder for me as a historian just to assert, I have these academic credentials, I'm the historian, I am the voice in the room that asserts what is true about history. It just You, you don't get very far doing that. Right. And it's not like, I don't know, quantum physics. And if there was an actual quantum physicist here and they said, this is how quantum physics works, I'd be like, okay, I don't understand quantum physics. Trained historians such as yourself, academic historians understand that history is always contingent. Mm -hmm. I mean, our understanding in in that sense, it's actually very similar to the scientific method. There's never any final statement this is our best understanding of the issue based on the evidence that we are currently aware of. And then as new information is discovered, it can change. And I think a lot of people don't don't understand how that process works. And, and that's right. fair enough. That comes back to the, um, the division we talked about earlier, commemorative, antiquarian, and academic. I, I prefer the word professional historian. I'm not even sure that's the right word. Professional historians understand that it's contingent. Other people looking at the commemorative, you know, the monuments, 
that have a solidity to them. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, in, in, in Richmond, in, in, in the Square of Heroes, I believe it was called, you know, I have this massive statue of Robert E. Lee. There, uh, even though it's less, well, no, it's now just slightly over 120 years old, but it has this sense of, you know, it looms over the square and it has this sense of solidity as if it had been there forever and will be there forever. And then suddenly somebody wants to take it down because they go, oh, oops, it was a more complicated story. You know, it's actually understandable that they would be upset by that because somehow you're, you're telling them some part of their way of knowing the world is wrong and people don't like to be told they're wrong. Right. And and people are not always good with change. Like change can be right. hard. The ambiguity that trained historians are comfortable with and that scientists are comfortable with, most people, most people are not very tolerant of ambiguity, are not yeah. very comfortable in ambiguous yeah. context. They want to know what's going on. And I think that's a big part of our culture wars. I think it, I think that very much is the case, that, that just learning to be comfortable with ambiguity and contingency and complexity are, are harder than we think they are. And the other thing I think about too is, you know, I'm I'm married. I, I just spend a lot of time in this stuff. Like I just I just sort of swim in it because of <laughs> it's my job. Like I get paid to do it. But for a lot of people who care about this, this is this is their hobby, their interests. Their you know they take their kids to see the statue or the museum because it's a good family outing. And they're not going to spend, and they probably shouldn't spend, you know, hours and hours and hours doing background research and just sort of looking at all the different angles on everything. That That's interesting, Phil, because it ties into another question or comment you mentioned to me earlier as we were thinking about, you know, doing this episode. History is so vibrantly consumed and debated publicly. When I say vibrantly consumed, there are history-themed parks. In most communities, there is a museum, and museums are no longer these, these dusty places where artifacts are stored. They have live presentations. I know here in H Erie, the Hagen History Center has been developing into a major tourist attraction for Erie, or it can become a major tourist attraction. So there's, there's that interest in, in history. And then, of course, it's debated publicly. It's probably the heart of the culture wars, which is really a contest about who we are and what our identity is. But so that you have this vibrancy, but yet in schools, history lags. It does poorly in schools. Do you have any thoughts on that dichotomy? I think a lot of it, as you and I have talked about, like not on this podcast, has to do changes in the his educational landscape. And that's that's maybe that's a whole different topic. So I won't go down that path. I think I just think there's a lot going on. I think sometimes it's that students enter into a history classroom and then somebody like me stands up and starts talking about history and contingency. And then we sort of hit them up with like a huge barrage of facts. And then we're like, here are the arguments. And I think that can be a little overwhelming. And I, so I think a lot of times, sometimes that's just a question of like how history is taught. And we're not the only discipline that this is true, but there's an element of teaching history where it is a sort of a quasi-public thing. You, your, your students are coming with preconceived notions about monuments and memorials and where they're from. You're sort of in dialogue with those students, but at the same time, it's not because it's not everybody's putting all their cards on the table. If that makes right. sense? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, it does. I, I mean, history sometimes, uh, both in you know, the K through 12 world and the higher education world, is not always taught well. What I mean by that, it's it's not taught in a way that engages students. 
I think the prime example of that is you pull off your any like high school textbook, college textbook, they're not radically different. Pull it off the shelf and look at it and just start reading it. It's a little like eating sawdust. It takes all the vibrancy out of it. All the stuff that gets captured in like all this public consumption of this you were talking about, the documentaries, podcasts, YouTube channels. I think you're absolutely right. And I think in fairness to history teachers, a lot of that is the attempt to be neutral. Uh, And the easiest way to be neutral is to reduce history to something akin to a timeline or, or a strict chronology. But even timelines and strict chronologies aren't neutral because you can't put down every minute of every hour of every day of every month of every year. It can't be done. So there are exclusions. Things are omitted. And by definition, somebody's made some critical choices. The other thing is people love stories. And that's why Ken Burns is so popular. You know, this would be an example. This program's a history-themed podcast doesn't make any pretensions at being an academic podcast, although I try to make sure, as Joe Lepore would say, uh, that anything I say is based upon facts, or at least my understanding of facts, which of course doesn't account for the fact that I may have misunderstand them or I may have omitted something, an honest omission and not a commission. Podcasts are enormously popular. There's probably hundreds of history podcasts. And I think what happens there is that those people are storytellers and people love stories. Now, of course, back to Lepore, history is the art of telling a story about the past accountable to evidence. But when you tell a story, you got to have something that looks like a plot. You got to have actors. You have to have foils. And this gets tricky for people. They they may not like that story. I What you have in the academic study of history is a lot of very precise, the the phrase is uh, more and more written about less and less, and the storytellers are are gone. Now, I'm for example, the I think it's the American Historical Association, but some but some associations' primary award is is either the Bancroft Award or the Parkman Award uh, for the best history book of the year. Well, if Francis Parkman were seeking tenure today based on the works that he's written, which are considered classics, he wouldn't get it because he's a storyteller and he wasn't right about everything and he had his biases. I mean, he was a patrician New Englander who looked at the world through the lens of a patrician New Englander, but he told fabulous stories. I mean, he was an incredible writer. I'm talking too much here. Does any of that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, ever since I was in grad school uh, at Ohio State, there's sort of ongoing discussion about what is the role in narrative. Should you, and, and you know, it, it ebbs and flows, but there's always this debate, and there is this sort of sense that if you want to have an academic career, you need to write more like a social scientist and less like a person that tells narrative, which is one of the reasons I would suspect that in the academy you see, and boy, I'm, I'm going to say this, but I don't have any numbers, but my gut sense is that's why you see like a lot fewer academic historians writing biographies. Right. Yeah. And I think you've touched on two things that are really important as I hear, and we've talked about a number of things, but common to all of them has been, at least by implication, what is history? History is so popular outside of the classroom because outside of the classroom, the purveyors of history are storytellers. Ken Burns is a storyteller. Most of the podcasts on history are storytellers. 
Increasingly, when you go into museums, they are organized around stories. In mm-hmm. fact, they even have a pathway uh, that you follow that isn't simply chronological. It's And what you have with academic historians is they're trying to get the facts right, if you will, which makes for a drier experience that turns students off. And of course, in that kind of summation, I've ignored the fact that history is at the heart of our culture wars because the culture wars are all about what's the right story. Yeah. And then the other thing is, it's not always obvious to somebody who's just picking up history, is that a lot of times if you're an academic, you're a scholar, you're in a very precise discussion with somebody else who studied whatever it is, your the topic at hand. And that leads itself to the type of writing. And, and, I'm, I'm not, and I think that's also very valuable because it does advance the state of the field. It, it, there's, a, there's a lot of positives to it. Um, but it's not something that unless, you, unless you're a scholar of that topic, you're probably just not going to engage in it, right? Yeah. And I, I kind of thought of it too, as like a little bit when we've had our pandemic and we all kind of were like reading more and more stuff written by biologists and epidemiologists. And then at some point I just sort of realized, I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I just, I, you know, they're, they're way into weeds, which is super important for them. I'm glad they're there, but I have, I really don't understand that. And, you know, and, and you just touched on a major issue. Academic historians spend a great deal of their time, maybe all of their time in the weeds, because they're trying to get the facts right. Yeah. Storytellers know that to tell an effective story, I've got to come above the weeds and I have to edit and I need memorable characters, etc. And so there's a there's a natural tension. And then that natural tension gets exacerbated if you then impose values upon it. And so the history wars are really about what is the quote unquote true story? Really, it's about a question of national identity or individual identity and where do I fit in all of this? You know, this is all fascinating. You know, as I look at the clock here and uh, we bring it uh, to a conclusion, we've talked about how, Phil, you became interested in history. And I, I like the comment you made at the beginning, me search, because it's part of trying to understand who is oneself. And it's also trying to understand how you became, how one became that person, and then the context in which one uh, matured. And so if you take that me search and elevate it, in many ways, the history wars and the culture wars are a me search as different factions of American culture attempt to figure out who they are and how they got here. What I'd like to do as we bring this conversation to a close is a couple of things. One, we've touched on so many big topics that maybe in the future could have you back for, if if not a whole episode, we would address one of these issues maybe more precisely as a sub-theme. As we think about me search, national identity, the study of history, president as the embodiment of American culture, are, are there any kind of concluding or summary comments you'd like to make about all of this? I, I just think, I, I guess in conclusion, I would say, like, in some ways, it's, it's just an exciting time. Um, sometimes it's a challenging time to be a historian to do history. But it's also, I, I find it interesting and invigorating that there's just so much, so many people in there engaging with it, however they're engaging with it. 
you know, for whatever your listeners, so if they're listening to your podcast, I'm assuming they're also in the other history podcast section of whatever their podcast app is and just continue exploring with the dialogue, you know, because I think that's healthy. I think one of the real virtues of history is in our current political mess, it allows us, if we, if we don't get caught up too much in the history wars and we think about using a history in another way to step back from, get perspective on, and let things play out before we go online and blow up whatever you know what i mean yeah i absolutely you know those yeah. are two really good observations one i think if we look at the intense interest in history even when it sometimes gets fractious and acrimonious the the positive is it's people trying to engage with their past how their past impinges upon their current reality to understand who they are and who we are as americans so it really means history is a critical and vibrant study and I think that last comment's uh, very important, that if you do go to online sites and Facebook pages or whatever on history, to engage uh, civilly, to avoid getting carried away with some of the uh, yeah. the intensity one will encounter. And just give things time to play out. Yeah. Exactly. Give, yeah. uh, have some patience. Well, in any event, Phil, thank you for being with us today on the American Tapestry Project. It's both been enlightening, enjoyable, Best to you and best to St. Bonaventure University. All right. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Phil, before we wrap up today, I want to clarify that earlier quote from Jill Lepore. I said she defined history as telling a story about the past accountable to evidence. Actually, in her The American Story, she made a slightly more subtle distinction. Lepore defined history as the art of making an argument about the past by telling a story accountable to evidence. So, in her definition, one story about the past had a point of view, but that point of view needed to be consistent with the evidence. It wasn't just a story. In any event, I thought we would clarify that point for our listeners. That's in Jill Lepore's book, The American Story. Again, thank you, Phil, for today's conversation. Next month on the American Tapestry Project, we'll be revisiting Christmas carols, their history and origin, the earliest American Christmas carols, Jingle Bells' curious backstory, and many other fun and some serious Christmas music factoids. That's next month on Sunday, December 11th at 4 p.m. The American Tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, Scholar-in-Residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserie.org. Once again, thank you to Phil Payne for joining us today, and thank you for listening.